Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to preach a message this morning. Who do you say that I am? I thought about retracting how I was going to open this. So I thought about how y'all might answer. If I were to ask you who is Buffy Cook, how might you respond? I might not want to hear the answers to that. But if I asked you that, who is Buffy Cook, how might you respond? Maybe doctor, pastor, Christian. You see, doctor would be correct, but it's incomplete. A doctor of what? Doctor of English? Medical doctor? If a medical doctor, what kind? A dermatologist, cardiologist, family practice? If he's family practice, any good? One that I would want to see. You see, the point is, details matter and have implications. If I said pastor, that's correct, but also incomplete. Is he a health and wealth prosperity guy? Is he truly preached the gospel? Feel good, preach the word? Is he boring, dynamic, what denomination? If he's Baptist, is he Southern Baptist? And if he's Southern Baptist, is he King James only free will Baptist? Or is he Reformed? See, the point is, details matter and have implications. If I said Christian, that's correct but incomplete. I pray that I'm not like your typical Christian that would deny the virgin birth and demons and Satan and say that the Bible has errors and that Jesus is not the only way. I think by now you understand details matter and have implications, correct? So Jesus comes asking the disciples the question of the day. Who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? One view they offered was completely inadequate. One view was completely correct, yet even the correct view needed some defining. It wasn't so much it was wrong as it was incomplete because, again, details matter and have implications. It had massive implications for their life and their walk with the Lord. And still today, 2,000 years later, it has massive implications for our lives and our walks with the Lord. In a nutshell, this is the message. If we confess Christ as Messiah, we not only accept a suffering Messiah, but we also embrace the reality of a cross for ourselves. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke 9. Verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, the Word of God, the people of God, preaching the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your precious Word today. I thank You for each person that is gathered here today. Father, we know that You have divinely appointed this day from the foundation of the earth. And so I thank You for the, each one that is here. Father, I pray that You would help us to set aside the daily cares of our lives and listen to You speak, Father, over the next few minutes. I pray that You would hide me behind the cross, Father, that You would speak so that Your people could hear. Help us to understand what it means, Father, when we confess You. Father, that we then embrace a suffering and dying Savior, one who then appoints a very cross for us ourselves. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name that I pray. Amen. So three parts this morning. Who do you say that I am? The first is confessing. That's verses 18 through 20. Look first with me, if you would, at a prayerful situation. Jesus is about to query His disciples about the opinions of others with regards to His identity. Who did the crowd say that I am? Yet before that question ever breaks the lips of Jesus, Luke notes that it is first prayer that falls from the lips of Jesus. For look at verse 18. Now it happened that as He was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. There's no mention of this in the parallel accounts of Matthew and Mark. Were it not for Luke, we wouldn't have this detail about the Lord recorded for us. Luke reveals a Jesus whose life was bathed, yet drenched in prayer. And it was important for Him to drench His life in prayer as the Son of God. Would we dare think that it's any less important for us to do the same? This was a huge moment in His life. He's staking everything in His ministry on these 12 guys and getting this point right here his identity, correct. And so he goes to the Lord before prayer, before Him in prayer. And so it reminds us at this point to stop and think, how is my prayer life? How is my prayer life? If it was important for the Lord to pray, especially before key moments, it's definitely important for me to pray. So prayerful situation next is popular opinion. Luke's already shown us that this question of Jesus' identity is one that is increasingly being asked far and wide. Remember John asked it in 719. The crowds asked it. The disciples even asked it. They said, who is this? Herod asked it. Who is this? And speculation was rampant. You go ask the average uh, Hebrew on the street and they have one of three guesses as it says here. John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. In a nutshell, Jesus is quite a swell guy. Back in chapter 7, verse 16, the crowd said, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Jesus is a good man and teacher. He's a great prophet sent by God. But the best guest on the street is, we would say, missed by a country mile. Amen? That was far cry from the truth that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And their miss would have eternal consequences. Remember what John said in John chapter 1, the very start of his gospel. He said, He, Jesus, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. 
One thing the Jews were proud of was being children of God. He said, you want to be a child of God, a true child of God, believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, you're not a child of God. And that only leaves one other alternative, and that's what? To be a child of Satan. And then Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 3, verses 14, he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. In verse 22 to 23, he said, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That's Jesus. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So to be wrong about Jesus is to have eternal consequences that are deadly. You know, not much has changed in 2,000 years as far as the way people view Jesus. If you think about it, there's one of three ways that people view Jesus today. One, he's a prophet. Millions who embrace Islam, that's what they believe, that Jesus is a prophet. They would say he's the goat. You know what goat is? Greatest of all time. He was the greatest prophet of all time. They would even say that. But they would say in the Shahada, in the first pillar of Islam, nothing deserves worship except God, and that is Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And so their miss has eternal consequences because it leads to eternal death, not eternal life. The second is a good man and a good teacher. That's the majority view today. Millions hold that despite the fact that C.S. Lewis has brilliantly debunked that. And this is what he said. I think I've read this to you before. But he says that Jesus, to say what he did, he's either a Lord, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Those are the only three options, he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And so the third is fiction. This is the minority view, but it's actually increasing. That Jesus is just the product of our wishful imagination is what they would say. And so they add to C.S. Lewis, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, a, th a fourth, which is legend. And so this is the, uh, a view of a lot of scholars, Albert uh, Schweitzer in the quest for the historical Jesus he said the Jesus of Nazareth he is a figure designed by rationalism endowed with life by liberalism and clothed by modern theology in a historical garb basically saying that he did not exist so Jesus knew exactly what he was doing he's getting his disciples to rehearse popular opinion and getting them prepared to then make a confession that not only surpassed people's ideas but contradicted it. Look at what he says here in verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I love what Dr. Wiersbe said. It's impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right with God. 
And it doesn't matter, as I've said, what Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawkins or Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey or Adrian Rogers or Buffy Cook says about Jesus. It is what do you say about Christ. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the you there is uh, emphasis. But who do, you can circle the you, underline it, triple underline it, highlight it. But who do you say that I am? And the you there is plural. He's not just asking Peter. He's asking each and every one of the disciples individually. Because ultimately, it didn't matter what Peter thought about it. Thomas had to make a decision for his own. And it doesn't matter what Buffy Cook says about Jesus Christ. You have to make a decision on your own. I can try and lead my family and I can show them and tell them and preach the gospel and this and that, but ultimately at the end of the day, Matthew Cook has to make a decision for Matthew Cook. And Cassie can show a life that is the life to live of a young person and she can preach Jesus and teach them, but ultimately at the end of the day, every individual person in her classroom has to make a decision for themselves who is Jesus. Because it's not a matter of who your parents is or who your denomination is or the area of the country in which you live. He's a matter of your own personal discovery. And so that's what he says. Who do you? Because I don't care what the other people say. It's who do you say that I am. And so Peter's confession really sets the stage for our own. Speaking as the leader for the group, look at what he says. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. That word Christ there is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Messiah or anointed one. Now they're not perfect in their understanding of Jesus as the Messiah at this point, are they? Because if you read Acts 1.6, even after Jesus has been resurrected and he's been with them for 40 days teaching them, they then say what? Now are you going to bring the kingdom in? I'm sure Jesus is gone. You know, how much longer before you thick-headed people get this? They weren't perfect in their understanding of it, right? But they at least confessed and they would grow in that understanding of it. What they missed like many of that day was that He would be a suffering Messiah. They had missed Genesis 3.15, right? That He's going to bruise your heel and you will crush His head. He's going to bruise your heel. There's uh, something coming for you. Psalm 22, that He would be crucified. Isaiah 53, that He would suffer. They completely missed those things. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 because I want to take a minute to show you something here as far as how does this confession come about? Jesus is going to here in a minute teach them the full ramifications of Him being a suffering servant. It was going to be a lesson that was kind of hard to digest. But before we get there, I want us to look at this. This is the parallel account. How was it that Peter came to know that Jesus was the Messiah? Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, unless you have a heart transplant, you're not going to be able to receive 
the things of the Spirit. The only way this confession takes place is a heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I can try and beat it into my kids. I can try and beat it into you. And I can try and you know lead you to follow Christ more. But until the Holy Spirit has got hold of your heart and regenerated your heart and the Lord has set you on fire, that's where it comes from. I can want it for you as desperately as I want it. I can want my children to be saved as desperately as I want them to be saved. And I can pray for them and all that. But until the Holy Spirit regenerates their heart, it's not going to happen. And so what? So what that Peter made this confession? What's the big point? The point is that it was everything. Jesus is staking his whole ministry on this. Look at verse 18 there, Matthew 16. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's so much discussion on this. The Catholic Church thinks that what this means is that on this rock, on this Petros, on Peter, the church would be built. And so he's the only bishop Ever, he's the only one, right? But if you read the context, what has uh, Peter just done? Confess Christ as the Messiah, as Christ, on that rock, on that bedrock of foundation of confession of truth, that upon that will I build my church. That's why this is important, because that is the absolute bedrock of our faith, is Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not the Baptist denomination. It ain't a King James Bible. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you try to build anything else on that, it is nothing but wood and hay and it is going to burn up. And that's why it's important. I saw or heard an illustration of a guy after the hundredth time he had been through customs, probably been through Shapo about a hundred times, and he was frustrated, and he gets in the line, and they've asked him for the hundredth time, do you have anything to declare? He said, yes, I do. I declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the official taken back said, well, I declare. And that is what we declare as the bedrock of our faith. Amen. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Alright, so once we confess that, then we accept something. So look at verses 21, 22. You ever been punched in the gut? Ever had the wind knocked out of you? Many a Friday night I've seen a football player I thought was dead and all that was was that the wind was knocked out of them, right? I imagine it's almost what happened to the disciples here when Jesus gives them the next words that He gives them. Because Peter has confessed Jesus is the Christ. I would expect that then what you're going to hear Jesus say is this, go tell everybody and then crown me with many crowns. But what they hear is tell nobody and I must die. With confession comes right expectations and heavy realizations. So look here, verse 21. He strictly charged. That means to rebuke or admonished strongly and commanded, that's a military term, to tell this to no one. There's almost an implied threat here in Jesus' words with these two very strong words. Saying the Son of Man must, that word in the Greek means it's absolutely necessary. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. Remember what we said. 
Messianic expectations at this point were at a feverish pitch. When you've been oppressed and persecuted for 500 years, it'll do that to you. Their desire was an earthly king, a military and political leader. <coughs> Remember last week when Jimmy preached on the feet of the 5,000 in John 6, 14, 15, after he did that, it said when the people saw the sign he had done, they said this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world, perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself because they had this idea that he was going to be this political, earthly king, not the spiritual king that he came the first time to be. In essence, they wanted a Christ or a Messiah of their own making, one that would make no demands on them. And the last thing Jesus needed was that kind of publicity. Oscar Wilde said the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Now that might be true if you're Paris Hilton or Miley Cyrus, but it ain't true if you're Jesus the Christ. Amen? Jesus is on a divine plan and a divine timetable, and that cannot be derailed. That's why he frequently told people, tell no one. The time was coming at the triumphal entry in which they would tell, but before that he didn't want people with erroneous expectations of what was going to happen. You know, you think about today, it really is not a whole lot different. Folks still want a Jesus of their own making. They really don't want the Jesus of Scripture. They want one that makes no demands on their calendar, little less their checkbook. Americans want a Christianity that's all gain and no pain. You go to the gym to work out and it's what? All pain so you can get some gain. We in Christianity want all gain and no pain. We want fire insurance. We want a cosmic vending machine that's just stuck on free where we can get stuff over and over and over. Jesus would not have His disciples to be that then and He will not have them to be that now. And so there's some heavy realizations that come with it. I mean, if you think about Jesus and His kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? Read the Sermon on the Mount. The least will be the greatest. You want to be rich? What do you do? Give away. You want to gain your life? What? Lose it. And so here he says, tell nobody. That had to be the last thing that they were expecting. Right? But if they broadcast it far and wide at that point, it would just fuel this idea that they would come and take Jesus forcibly to make Him king before He could even get to the cross. And so he says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed. If you think about it, he'd already given hints of this was what was to come. John called him what? The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That should have taken them to the Passover and they knew that he then would have to die. What did Jesus predict when he cleaned the temple? He said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. That's a prediction that his death is what would have to take place. Remember, he compared himself to the serpent in the wilderness. Just as the serpent was lifted up, so if the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. Well, that's a referral to his passion and crucifixion. And then he said that the one sign that the leaders would get was the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. That's referring again to his death. So now that they've got a grasp on who he is, he's going to tell them the what and the why clearly and repeatedly. And we're going to see as we go through Luke 
He's going to repeatedly come back and teach them that he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to go to Jerusalem to die. And so four things he said would mark his career. One, he had to suffer many things. Two, he had to be rejected. Three, he had to be killed. Remember, that's the last thing on their mind. Remember what Peter did after Jesus said this? In this Luke's account, he doesn't have it. But Peter pulls him aside and he says, Now Jesus, that ain't going to happen. You're not going to go get killed. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan, because you don't understand the plan of God. And so it took them some time to learn this lesson. Dr. Hughes said this prophecy was so completely foreign to their concept of Messiah that when he died they were disoriented and devastated. They had heard him predict it but had never accepted it as fact. It just did not fit in with their picture of what the Messiah would be and do. What Jesus is about to now tell them is that it was a road that he wasn't going to walk alone. There was going to be lots of company and the company that was going to walk it was them. You remember his words from the beginning in Matthew 10, 24? He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they kill me, think what they may do to you. And so he prepares them for that. third part is embracing. So once we confess Christ, we accept and embrace the reality that he is a suffering Messiah, a suffering Christ, and then we embrace the reality of a cross for ourselves. Jesus taught a new way of discipleship. This new way of discipleship is threefold. First, he says to take up your cross. Look at verse 23. And he said to all. Notice he didn't just say to Peter. And he didn't just say to the twelve. He said to all. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So why a cross? Because self-denial is an absolute must. Dr. Rogers said, God doesn't want a place in your heart. He demands and deserves preeminence. God's throne is not a duplex. Another pastor said, A crucified Savior is not well served by self-pleasing, self-indulging people. And think about, these disciples knew what it meant for a crucifixion, didn't they? When somebody was crucified, they weren't only crucified, but they had to carry their own cross. When a man from one of their villages took up the cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, you know what was going to happen? He was going to die, and he was on a one-way journey, and he wasn't coming back. And to bear the cross basically was to show that you were under the authority of that individual. And so that's what they were going to eventually shows that they were absolutely, even to the point of death, under Jesus' authority. Listen to what Jim Elliott said. He said, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord, have it all. Pour out my life, and it's an oblation for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. Now, if that ain't a countercultural teaching, we got millennials that have to go to safe spaces. 
We got a man of God on a foreign missionary field that says the only use of my blood is if it flows before your very altar. And so this begs the question, what are our crosses to bear? You ever heard people talk about their cross they have to bear? It's everything from neuropathy to a hangnail to bills to an annoying spouse or an annoying child, isn't it? Are any of those things crosses? No. A cross is anything that comes from us specifically walking in Christ's steps and following Him. I saw somebody had shared a video this past week on Facebook of uh, some people had taken a video, Christians, of uh, Target. And they had stopped at Target basically to stage to go somewhere else and they were going to do some type of ministry or something. And so they had this video on there basically trying to talk about how the people of Target were being so disrespectful to them and how they were suffering for the Lord's sake. They were parked all kind of crazy way in the parking lot, taking up multiple parking spaces and being an annoyance and a nuisance in the parking lot. That is not suffering for Christ. That's being a jerk. So there's a difference. It's when you're following in Christ's steps. If they had come in there and parked just like they should have, and then they're being uh, accosted because they are Christians and that alone, then you can say that was a cross. Amen? But to have a painful medical condition today, that is not a cross. To have an annoying person that we have to put up with, that is not a cross. To walk and be persecuted because of our faith in Christ that's a cross. Alright, so the second aspect he gives is a call to lose our life for Christ's sake. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so remember, this, you know, when Jesus says, Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. A lot of people when they hear that, what do they do? They're out of there. Remember in John 6, Jesus broke out the eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon. And what did they say? Man, this is a hard saying. Who can, under, who can deal with this? And it says, after that, not many of his disciples walked with him anymore. But we have to understand we serve a Christ that has an upside down kingdom. And so losers or keepers, as he says there, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jim Elliott again, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I love what Dr. Barclay said. He said, Christians must realize that life is given not to keep for themselves, but to spend for others, not to nurture its flame, but to burn it out for Christ and for others. And then he says, keepers are losers there in verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's been said that King Charlemagne in the year 1000, they opened his tomb and had all these incredible treasures. And there's the skeleton of the king seated on the throne with a crown on his skull and a copy of the gospel that's in his lap and his finger is resting on Luke 9.25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul. You can own the whole world and still be too poor to buy back a lost life. Amen? Amen. 
And then the third aspect is a call not to be ashamed of the Son of Man. This, you could say, is the beauty of the cross. For he says, verse 26 and 27, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. No matter how difficult the cost or the call, Jesus is to be headed, to be heeded. Because as the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah who's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. Amen? And the last words He has in Scriptures are that He's coming back to bring His recompense, His reward to those who have been faithful. When He comes, if you've been loyal, you'll be rewarded. If you've been disloyal, you'll be punished. If you've been true to Him in this life, He'll be true to you in the next by acknowledging you before God the Father. And so then he gives this strange promise which we'll look at more next week. I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We talk in Sunday school a lot of times, Coach, talking this uh, Sunday about some of the crazy views that people will have on different interpretations. And I found several different people said there's up to seven different interpretations of this one verse of what Jesus said is referencing. But when you go down to verse 28, look at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Directly after this promise, now Jesus takes three of his disciples up and they get to see him transfigured. To me, that is the transfiguration. What he's talking about, the promise here, some that are standing here, the some being Peter, John, and James, won't taste death. They won't die until they see the kingdom of God. They will see Jesus for who He really is. They'll be rewarded before they have to ultimately give their life for the Lord. But we need to know that ultimately, no matter what we have to give up for the Lord in this life, we will be rewarded in the next. Amen? In closing, you know, even at Vacation Bible School, we teach kids how important it is to confess, right? A, B, C, admit to God you're a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son, C, confess your faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so I would ask us, do we truly not just say who Christ is, but do we truly live it? Do our lives match our lips? Are we good at confessing Christ? Not just to ourselves, but more importantly to others and to Christ. When I think about my own life in confession, it's not just the one-time event I did in September of 2001. It's what I do daily to live for the Lord. So if we confess Him as Christ, we have to cling to His bloody cross we have to take up that cross and deny ourselves and follow Him. And if we do that, then we have made a good confession. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for this time. Father, just thank You for this service that we have had today. The opportunity we have had to come and just to worship You and sing Your praises. Father, I thank You for uh, just everything that You do for us. Thank You for Your Word that we have been able to open up this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would just bless the preaching of it, that, Father, we would each take something from it and apply it to our life. Help us, Father, 
to follow you more, to cling more to your cross, Father. And I pray for anyone here today that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior in this time of invitation, that today would be the day that they would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. For it's in his precious and wonderful name I pray. Amen. Let me ask you, have you ever heard the expression, bet your bottom dollar? Of course, something like that would be an American phrase, right? It's an American phrase that dates actually to 1856. What does it mean? It means to be absolutely certain of something, right? That you would bet it to your last dollar. The origin actually comes from the first century A.D. and it's a Christian phrase. Paul uses it uniquely in the pastoral epistles. And it goes something like this. The saying is trustworthy. In other words, what I'm about to say, you can bet your bottom dollar that this is true. Amen? The first one that he has in 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Amen? Who's the worst sinner in here? Buffy Cook. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save each and every one of us. Amen? The fourth of the fifth he gives has to point to what Jesus said this morning in 2 Timothy 2.11. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Here it is. If we deny Him... He will also deny us. And so Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I was reminded this week, once again, of Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for man to die once and in the judgment. Brothers and sisters, we can go on and on like we've got a hundred more years to live on this planet. And there was a girl that I talked to every single day that walked in my office the exact same age as me. And I guarantee you when she woke up Tuesday morning, she didn't know that would be the last day she was conscious. And tomorrow they will lay her to rest. I rest in the trust that she knows our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, we don't have a hundred years. And so, on the day of judgment, is it going to be said of you that you denied Him or you embraced Him? Because if you deny Him here, He's going to deny you there. And so, I pray that if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please do not walk out of here today without knowing Him. There are plenty of capable, able-bodied people that will talk to you about how to know with 100% certainty that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of your life. Amen? And so as we stand this morning and sing, come listen to the Lord this morning. Days are filled with sorrow and care Hearts are lonely 
Jesus is very near. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. You may say it for the offering. <laughs>